0: Welcome to worship. My name is Olivia Osterhage, and I am blessed to serve as the Director of Marketing and Outreach here at First St. Charles. In just a little bit, Reverend Dr. Kate Hanch will be continuing the sermon series entitled Cringe. Today's scripture comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 19. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I assure you that it will be very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. When his disciples heard this, they were stunned. Then who can be saved, they asked. Jesus looked at them carefully and said, it is impossible for human beings, but all things are possible for God. This is God's word. Lord have mercy. Jesus is on a roll here is Matthew's gospel. He had just Chastised the disciples for gatekeeping. Who could talk to him and worship with him? And then he tells, blunt, then he bluntly tells the rich young Silicon Valley upstart that yes, he may do all the right things, but ultimately his god is mammon, his god is money, and not the one true God. Jesus would have just uh, would have offended just about everybody who would have his back or fund his ministry, and seems to not give a you-know-what. Many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first, is what he tells Peter in Matthew 19.30. And you know Peter loved to hear that. And then, And then in the middle of that nonsense, jesus tells his disciples and the learners around him it's easier to go it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich person to get into the kingdom of heaven and this saying this saying of the camel through an eye of a needle well that's not original to jesus It appears in the Talmud, the writings that came after the Hebrew Bible was written, but before Jesus was around. As our Confirmation students learned when we visited the synagogue, Jewish people today still refer to the Talmud, seeing it as helpful in their faith. This saying of the camel through the eye of the needle is also found later after Jesus lived on earth in the Quran the Muslim holy scriptures. And Shakespeare even uses it too in one of his lesser known plays. Most likely, Jesus' hearers would have known about this common quip and would have known the ridiculousness behind it. And this saying, the camel through the eye of the needle, is common around the world and throughout the centuries. And the words Still, make us cringe. We like to domesticate parts of the gospel that tell hard truths about us, and this passage is no exception. And there's a reason that this particular passage is not included in any Sunday lectionary. And a lectionary is a series of passages that some churches use in worship. This passage is not included in it. Now, some people like to moderate the saying. Surely, Jesus wouldn't make such a big hyperbole. For instance, some make the claim that the passage refers to cable instead of camel. And in Hebrew, the words do sound similar, like they do in English. When I was learning Hebrew, even the word camel looked similar to its animal counterpart. One of the few things I remember about Hebrew, because it was a tough language. Now, however, most scholars think that the switch between camel and cable, or the switch to cable, Happens in later versions of the scriptures and later manuscripts rather than the earliest, most reliable manuscripts that we have them, in the New Testament. Now, others try to soften the saying by focusing not on the camel part, but on the needle part. These folks say, well, the eye of a needle isn't a literal eye of a literal needle. The eye of a needle could refer to a pedestrian gate, which would be in the walls of Jerusalem. I've not been to Jerusalem, but those who have, like our Holy Land folks there now, could testify to the size of those pedestrian doors. They're small, and a camel could most not likely fit in there. The theory, however, is an enticing one. I mean, if you squeeze the camel, or if it was a baby camel, then maybe it could go through those doors. But, and there's a but to it, isn't there? The earliest source we have with this interpretation is Anselm in the thousands, like in the ten hundreds, so like ten fifties or whatever or about 1,000 years after Jesus was born. And Anselm lived in England area, which is thousands of miles away from Jerusalem. So needless to say, it's not the most accurate theory. Now, I find interesting that just as long as Jesus' words have been around, just as long as they've been around, we've been trying just as long To moderate them when it comes to things we don't want to change about ourselves we try to find ways around them right what is it about us about human nature that we try to tamp down the hard truths about the bible especially when it's talking about money one of my study bibles connects this saying to james 5. And do you think Jesus makes us cringe? I mean, James, James goes one step further. James 5 1 through 4 says this Pay attention, you wealthy people. Weep and moan over the miseries coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, moths have destroyed your clothes. Your gold and silver have rusted, and their rust will be evidence against you. It will eat your flesh like fire. Consider the treasure you have hoarded in the last days. Listen, hear the cries of the wages of your field hands. These are the wages you stole from those who harvested your fields. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of heavenly forces. Yikes. Now back to Jesus, back to Jesus. The disciples know the rich person can't get into heaven. And so the disciples ask, then how must we be saved? How can anybody be saved? And Jesus answers them, it's impossible for human beings, but all things are possible with God. All things are possible with God. This This is not a saying like winning the lottery or training for a marathon. You know those motivational posters. It doesn't point to a prosperity gospel which says wealth and health means you're favored. It goes so much deeper, more vastly than we can imagine. This, This is grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. Maybe this passage gets at the heart to what it means to be a follower of Jesus, influenced by John Wesley. Because within the passage, we see both the abundance of God's grace and simultaneously, Simultaneously, the compulsion to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, as UMC deacon and the creator of the Wesley Brothers cartoon series, and it's a good series, Google it, check it out. Charlie, he's a UMC deacon, Charlie Baber writes, Grace and responsibility are key components for, of Wesleyan Christianity. For John Wesley, God's grace must have a practical application. In other words, grace is not an idea, but a free gift and experience we can cultivate through practices designed by God. Since the Protestant Reformation, we have often pitted the law against the gospel as if there is no grace at work, and the rules God lays out throughout Scripture. And yet, Jesus explains that in the entire law can be summed up in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The law of love can be summed up in that, yes, but it is spelled out in the actual study and practice of biblical law. For Wesley, the rules are not there to regulate our living, but are God's grace freely given to us to live whole and happy lives. Here in Matthew 19, We see Jesus emphasize God's grace in stating that nothing is impossible with God. And we see gestures toward that practical application of grace. To offer grace in the forms of our time, our money, and our talents to those who need it most. And that can be hard. Extremely hard for those of us, like me, who dislike uncertainty. But the command to love our neighbors also helps us be whole and brings us into community. In fact, we cannot experience grace apart from community, can we? We cannot offer grace to others apart from community, too. And Martin Luther King knew this all too well. That grace and salvation had to be experienced in community and lived out in community. In 1961, he gave a commencement address to Lincoln University. Now, not the one in Jefferson City, where my dad graduated from, but the one in Pennsylvania. And his address was entitled The American Dream. And he juxtaposed the equality idealized in the Declaration of Independence, with the reality he experienced living in the 1960s United States. You know that saying in the opening of the Declaration of Independence, that all white men, because let's face it, women and African-Americans were not at the table, deserved life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. That these truths were sanctioned by the one who created us. Well, Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness does not happen alone. And as King writes in relation to this, he says that all life is interrelated. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. As long as there is poverty in the world, no person can be totally rich, even if they have a billion dollars. This is the interrelated structure of reality. Maybe this is what Jesus thought of when equipped to the disciples. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a billionaire to get into heaven. And why Jesus continues in chapter 19 and throughout the Gospels to say stuff that makes us cringe. Jesus is one strange dude who, frankly, makes me uncomfortable. And Jesus uses such a wild, obscene analogy because this whole grace thing is ridiculous. The rich aren't saved by their wealth. The poor aren't even saved by their poverty or their actions. We're all saved by the God who made us and loves us. And with this grace, as John Wesley, and Jesus himself points out, comes responsibility. Grace and responsibility. Responsibility and grace. Key struggles of this passage and of our lives today. What do responsibility and grace look like Uh, for us today grace looks like the public school teacher who comes to work every day underpaid and stressed seeing the hurt behind a child acting out and being a safe place for that child to land I mean we have those teachers right here on our congregation responsibility looks like making sure that teacher and student are supported through prayer, a backpack program so the student can have enough to eat, and policies which support and uplift both teachers and students. Grace. Grace looks like becoming open to changing your mind after your grandchild comes out to you. You may not know what to say or what to do, but you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you love your grandchild more than you can ever imagine or dream, and that would never change. And responsibility looks like making sure your grandchild can live out their life with no fear and be surrounded by a safe and supporting community. Grace grace looks like forgiving those who murdered you as you hang on the cross. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they not know what they do. Responsibility looks like making sure other innocent people aren't imprisoned or murdered. Hebrews 13.3 reminds us to remember prisoners as if you were in prison with them, and people who are mistreated as you were in their place. Ultimately, ultimately, grace looks like love. And responsibility, responsibility, too, looks like love. And love, love looks like Jesus. Even if and when he does make us cringe.